On this episode of Water Flying, I am joined by David Johnston, who worked with the amazing VS-44 flying boat on Catalina Island. You are listening to Water Flying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the water flying community. Climb aboard! We're about to start today's episode. Well, welcome back to another episode of Water Flying. I am so thrilled because we are in Puyallup, Washington, just coming off the Northwest Aviation Trade Show. And I am joined by my good friend, David Johnston, who actually worked on the VS-44 flying boat operating out of Catalina, out of Avalon Bay in Catalina Island off the coast of California in the 1960s. David Johnston, you are an amazing man full of uh, incredible stories of working in this magical time of flying boats. Thank you for joining me today to have a discussion about this really special time for uh, fans of seaplanes and flying boats. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate being here. Um, the uh, big highlight, of course, was the giant Sikorsky VS-44, uh, the last winged aircraft that uh, Sikorsky ever made. Everything after 1942 was were helicopters. So it was uh, an unbelievable opportunity for us in Avalon to work with that Sikorsky, which had a great history. Yeah, and you and I, I say this with so many of our guests, but literally over the last 20 years, have shared stories of of your exploits. We'll just say <laughs> it was a very, very colorful history. And I have to tell you, as we prepared for this podcast, it, I was very intimidated with the fact that we were going to have to try to do it in one hour because uh, the the stories of seaplanes and flying boats and the history of Catalina is so fascinating and so rich, and there's so much to tell. And then just the alone, the VS-44 and the Grumman Gooses that operated on the island. I mean, there is so much to tell here that uh, we have got our work cut out for us today. So uh, let's get started with talking a little bit about your history growing up, because again, you were in the right time at the right place to see some very historical things happen in Southern California. Well, that is true. Uh, Both my twin brother and I were born about a week before Pearl Harbor and grew up in Southern California on Highway 1, right across the highway, about 200 yards from what at that time was known as the Lomita Flight Strip. It turned into the Torrance Municipal Airport, and today it's known as Louis Zamperini Field. So it's a pretty fun uh, history as far as that's concerned. So we had aircraft zooming across the face of our property in the middle of nowhere in those days uh, all the time. Uh, and in, in the fact, middle of nowhere, which is now buried in the middle of a metropolis. Uh, constant uh, malls and what have you. Yep, that's the truth. So it's Highway 1, Pacific Coast Highway number 1, and all the in World War II, all of the aircraft manufacturers seem to have all of their parts and finished plane parts go by that highway in trucks. And so 
we had uh, airplanes in our blood, I guess. Um, and in fact, even into the after the war ended, uh, the Hughes flying boat that was made in Santa Monica, about maybe a dozen miles from us, they were carrying parts of that on trucks past us. Couldn't get the fuselage down our highway, but uh, a lot of action in the airplane world uh, in our neighborhood. Yeah, you had, I mean, when coming up to the uh, uh, war years, I mean, all the manufacturers that built a lot of our military aviation aircraft were based in Southern California. I mean, it was a hotbed of uh, production and development of our uh, World War II aircraft. Uh, North American P-51s, the, uh, um, I guess, B-25 bombers were produced with... uh, British rondelles on them, and they'd ship them off to England. Um, so, yeah, uh, out in the valley, even in, in Burbank, there were, I don't think, 8,000 P-38s made out there. So it was uh, quite a thing. And, of course, we weren't that far from Long Beach Harbor and San Pedro, which uh, was a port for exporting everything for, from landing craft to aircraft. Uh, that was uh, another focus just over the hill from our house. Well, you mentioned earlier uh, a little airplane made by Mr. Howard Hughes, the Spruce Goose, which we'll talk about. But, I mean, literally from the Spruce Goose to Northrop, you actually got to uh, witness some of the very first flying wings fly. Yep, uh, and Lockheed, too, they were kind of a couple of miles apart, those two. The flying wing, the big one, we saw that. And, of course, they had maybe a dozen of the smaller, and they were flying those all all over top of us, all the uh, late 40s. It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's really amazing because very few people have seen a flying wing fly today. Mm. Uh, one of the originals, not a B-2, of course. <laughs> we're, we're talking about piston and, and early jet-powered flying wings. That was the origin of the v, V-2 thing. Yeah. They, uh, yeah. yeah. So the other, there was one other thing we, uh, toward the early 50s, we had DC-3s that were highly polished, uh, for United Airlines, they'd fly from LAX, Los Angeles International, right over top of our house on their way to Avalon Bay or to Catalina Island to the airport in the sky there. Well, let's talk about the Spruce Goose. So you literally saw pieces of the Spruce Goose going down the road uh, for its assembly. Uh, but, I mean, if we look back in time in the romance of flying boats and some of the major, major historical moments in aviation and and seaplanes and flying boats, uh, you actually had a memorable moment with the flying boat with with the Hughes that's Spruce Goose. Oh, you? yeah. And of course, we did, we never referred to it as the Spruce Goose because <laughs> that was a what a derogatory kind of uh, saying from the news people. Uh, anyway, the certain parts of it that were. Okay to travel on Highway One, the empanage. The HK One, HK, uh, yeah, there H, you go. And the K was for Henry Kaiser. Yeah, and uh, he uh, he he had helped uh, initially with the uh, funding and the design and so forth. In fact, the the uh, Hughes flying boat wound up in a geodesic dome provided by um, uh, the uh, Kaiser Aluminum, and it's still there at uh, the Long Beach Harbor where our seaplane base used to be. Well, let's go back to the the historic moment because we we kind of got off track there. Um, you climbed a hill one day to watch something happen. What was that? Well, yeah. So our dad was an electrician at uh, Todd Shipyards in uh, San Pedro, which is right next to Long Beach Harbor, 
And he was a fan and kept track of ships, planes, and what have you. So I think it was about our fifth, sixth birthday, he took us up to the top of Point Furman with about several hundred other people. And my brother and I didn't know what we were there for, but there were a lot of people that were taking motion pictures uh, down into the Los Angeles Harbor area and looking at this plane that was buzzing around. And we didn't On the water. Uh, On the water, correct. Um, And so people all of a sudden started cheering and clapping and what have you, and we looked down there, and a little plane that had been buzzing around and leaving a wake no longer was leaving a wake. That was the HK-1 that took its only flight. Wow. So you actually witnessed uh, Howard Hughes flying the Spruce Goose the one and only time, and it was only a a 30-second flight at best, something like that. It was a very short flight. Correct. Very momentarily. It it was uh, thrilling. Oh, that's amazing. I I, I can't tell you how much that... I wish I would have been there. I mean, that would have been amazing. And, of course, you see the footage of it. Uh, if you, anyone's ever seen the historical footage of Hughes in the cockpit and uh, of the helicopter, they were flying alongside, uh, shooting uh, footage of it from boats and, and I think, low-flying airplanes. And there's some great black-and-white footage of, of the one and only flight. And that airplane uh, still survives today uh, thanks to some very forward-thinking uh, by the Evergreen family. Uh, Michael uh, took the airplane and uh, it saved it from being scrapped. Uh, it was under threat of being scrapped. Uh, they were wanting to uh, use the dome in Long Beach and get it out of there. And Disney owned the airplane and didn't know what to do with it. Uh, Walt Disney actually had purchased the Spruce Goose, and uh, they were going to scrap it and only keep the cockpit and uh, Michael from the Evergreen family up in uh, McMinnville, Oregon, uh, arranged for it to be uh, disassembled and uh, barged uh, up where they built a, a museum specifically for a very good museum, uh, um, I might add, in McMin- McMinnville, Oregon. And they did a lot of restoration because the airplane had been uh, pretty, uh, hadn't been well taken care of uh, for many years. Yeah, the. Uh- the McBinville Museum is a classic place. I've taken my grandsons there, uh, and they were a little young, so they didn't really appreciate they were being on the actual uh, Hughes flying boat, but uh, they were really thrilled by the 747 that was on the upper stories. <laughs> of all things, yes. <laughs> Where they as could... much as I love the 747, when there's a spruce goose in the room, uh, <laughs> the 747 is... Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, they, well, they'd love the uh, spiral down out of the 747 into the swimming pool. On the water was, slide. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a very unique water slide. Actually, you go through the engine cowlings of the 747 on the water slide. But uh, if you get the opportunity to actually go up inside the Spruce Goose, uh, which I have, and you can actually sit in Howard Hughes's seat and look out, they the whole front of the museum is glass and it actually looks like. Uh, you're looking out over a, a runway as your water runway as you go out there the, the way they've set it up and uh, it's amazing but we're talking about Catalina and we have to talk about some of the the history of the flying boats and Catalina because uh, again the history of Catalina is just absolutely fascinating I'm enthralled with it there's so much history with this little island 22 miles off of the California coast and so much of it has included flying boats. So let's, 
kind of explore that a little bit uh, because this goes literally back to the 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 very first flying boats that existed on a timeline standpoint. Correct. Uh, the uh, by the way, Catalina, uh, we, our house at Catalina, the only thing between us and, and the ocean was a uh, pile of Verdes. Uh, yep. Many many people may know that one of the Trump golf courses is there, and so oh, forth. No. Okay. <laughs> and so, anyway, uh, just to jump over the hill, and you were seeing Catalina. Um, so yeah, back in nineteen twelve, nineteen twelve, um, the uh, first flight to Avalon uh, Bay was uh, by Glenn Martin. He had a ship that he'd built himself, assembled in a kind of a abandoned church in Newport Beach, bolted it to a friend's skiff, and flew across the channel in 1912. Yeah, so what I think is funny about that is, you know, there's so much thought that goes into float design and hull design and everything else. And and Martin, who actually went on to be a very, very prolific flying boat manufacturer and designer, literally strapped a John boat to the bottom of this airplane and flew over. And when we talk about Avalon, Avalon is the largest bay and and pretty much the the bay that uh, the majority of of uh, uh, both uh, boat and and seaplane operations occurred in over there. So look it up on the map. But uh, yeah, Martin straps a John boat onto the bottom of this airplane that he constructed and flies it over in 1912 and lands it in Avalon Bay. Correct. Uh, and there's another aviation uh, person that uh, had played a big role. Uh, in Catalina and seaplanes, and that's Donald Douglas. And Donald Douglas manufacturing aircraft uh, in Long Beach, San Monica, and so forth in Southern California. Um, he was originally from Chicago, loved to vacation uh, in his home in Pasadena, and loved to uh, compound that by having a house in Avalon. And so he used to, with his other friends and so forth, would take their boats over and they got to sitting on the the, the lanai and having a drink and said, wouldn't it be nice if we had airplanes that could fly us here instead of having to deal with the boats? We could be here quickly. And so Donald Douglas and William Wrigley said, well, let's uh, get going on that. I'll find a place for you to land and uh, we'll set it up at Hamilton Cove if you'll build the airplane. And so Donald Douglas built the Douglas Dolphin, which... Uh, uh, was a, a kind of a what Cessna plane with the lower wing was shorter than the top wing, and it had retractable gear. the The wheels folded kind of up underneath the lower wing, and that existed for about ten years. Well, and and but there's a lot of history before Douglas. So we just mentioned Martin. We just mentioned Douglas. There was also Lowing, but to me, one of the most interesting things that. You know, if anyone, we, I think Carter didn't, uh, we, we were talking earlier, Carter didn't realize who Charlie Chaplin was, but uh, Charlie Chaplin, uh, the great uh, comedian, um, actually started the first flying service to Catalina and uh, had uh, Chaplin Airways. Yeah, yeah, operated for one short summer. <laughs> the, the big thing was he del- delivered one of the, his movie star gals that, that would star with him in some of his short movies, and they would deliver newspapers uh, and uh, wouldn't hold the boat, come nose it up to the dock, and uh, that was a big highlight. And that attracted a lot of other Hollywoodites uh, 
that decided that maybe Catalina is a good place to venture over and see what's going on. Yeah, so Charlie Chaplin was not only a prolific movie star and and silent movie star and comedian, but uh, the fact that he invested in a seaplane airline, the very first seaplane service to serve Catalina, to me is just, I, I just, that's the kind of history that I just geek out on. But uh, uh, also, you mentioned Wrigley of Wrigley Spearmint Gum, who actually bought the island and owned the island and was a very prolific figure on the island. Wrigley family still owns uh, the part of that's uh, unincorporated. The incorporated town of Avalon is the only thing that Wrigley doesn't own. Um, and so he really transferred or transformed that location, Avalon into a vacation paradise for a lot of people, mainly for his friends to start with, but for everyone. Uh, and so it's that's part of the great history that uh, Steve was dis- referring to. The, the Douglas Dolphin that was designed to work uh, to Avalon was in Hamilton Cove, and Wrigley engineered, because he was from Chicago, uh, he had uh, a lot of experience with the way the trains come into Chicago and they have turntables. Well, he set up a turntable at Hamilton Cove so the Douglas Dolphins could come in, turn around, just the guys would push it around, and it goes straight back down because shore land is not uh, flat. So that was how they dealt with it. Yeah, it's a very rocky coastline. There's about the only beaches in Avalon Bay. Uh, as far as I know, everything else is a pretty rocky shoreline there. Except for perhaps the isthmus, which yeah. is another category. Uh, however, that uh, that Hamilton Bay operation with the Douglas Dolphin lasted for 10 years from like 1930 into World War II, actually, when the Coast Guard took over everything and all the planes, all the Douglas Dolphins were repainted <laughs> with Coast Guard colors. Uh, quite an operation. Yeah, so uh, just real briefly, because, again, we're going to run out of time here. But the, the Wrigley family, they built the casino, what it, what it is called as this casino, and it's this big circular building overlooking Avalon Bay. And they would literally have these massive, had the largest dance floor in the world at the time. Uh, and they would bring Louis, uh, I mean, the, the, the most prolific uh, jazz musicians in, and it was the place for the elite uh, to go have a Friday night party. Uh, yep the the uh, the Great White Steamer would come in at the at the uh, steamer pier. There are two piers uh, originally in Avalon, and so yeah, Friday nights was a big deal. Folks would get off in their evening finery, walk right to the casino ballroom upstairs, um, which was built in twenty nine. Uh, and that was the thing to do uh, was to go to uh, Catalina to the big bands and uh, at the uh, uh, casino. Yeah. So moving right along, the the airplane of the hour is the Sikorsky VS forty four, the Voigt Sikorsky forty four. Let's talk about the history of this amazing airplane. So out of all the Sikorskys, this was the last fixed wing airplane that Sikorsky uh, made. And they only made three of these aircraft, so it's a very obscure aircraft. And your your future boss uh, located one of these. Uh, but let's talk about the history of the VS-44 a little bit. Uh, you know, the airplane itself and then how Dick Probert found it and uh, uh, brought it up to Catalina. Right. So first, if you start with Sikorsky, he was born in Russia, continually taught himself to fly, 
uh, was always wanting to fly helicopters, which had not really, <laughs> no one else was trying that. He uh, wasn't happy with uh, Russia, left there, migrated to the USA in 1920, set up a manufacturing uh, with some other emigres from Russia in New York, um, ultimately wound up in Connecticut, it's kind of next door, uh, and built the first S-28, the Sikorsky, the, everything starts with an S. <laughs> yes. And the S, uh, S-28 is... Uh, a major player in early aviation. And so then he progressed with other higher numbers and wound up with the S-44, which is a four-engine, transoceanic, uh, golden-age classic flying boat. Kind of uh, positioned somewhere between the uh, M-130 and the Boeing 314, uh, if you can visualize uh, the size and the class of the boat, four-engine flying boat, no gear, and uh, uh, built uh, S-38, S-39, S-40, uh, S-43, the baby. Yeah, the, uh, so the S-40 was flown by Pan Am uh, down from Miami to Cuba and the uh, Caribbean route down there. And uh, then they only built three of the VS-43 or 44s at the time. And this one was found, um, the owner and operator of it, um, it had gone derelict and had been abandoned uh, out of bankruptcy down in Peru. Correct. Uh, in fact, the uh, the thing was beached. The uh, gun- literally sitting on the on the shoreline, <laughs> abandoned. And and the uh, I'm not sure what the guy's position was. I think it was a former navigator on that. He hadn't been paid, and so he set up camp on the beach in Peru near Ancon and. Uh, he had a sidearm. He carried a forty-five on his hip, and he wasn't going to get that. L- Let that a- that thing go. <laughs> yeah, nobody's getting the landing gear or beaching gear until he gets paid. So the owner of Catalina Airlines at that time, the name was Avalon Air Transport. His name is Dick Probert. He got wind of this plane being abandoned in Peru and put on a whole episode of going down there, getting it flyable, and flying it from. Had to pay off the... the <laughs> Took a big check. To, yeah. Yes, that is correct. So uh, so he got it. Uh, it was actually quite a few trips down there uh, to mechanically get it ready to fly and to wire money down to this guy to pay him off and, and get everything. Uh, but then he has an airplane, this giant flying boat he's never flown before, uh, and he has to get it from Peru to Southern California. And Dick Probert, well, of course, he had experience with uh, four-engine uh, aircraft because he, in World War II, flew all over the South Pacific, delivering from you know LA or California to um, Australia. So anyway, he uh, went down there, and there. Oh, I don't know why they haven't made a movie of this adventure. I know, I know, it's, <laughs> it's incredible. A, yeah. There's, this is a whole episode. Just, just the repositioning flight is a whole episode. They tried one, got things refurbished, and the engines and. To try to take off, and uh, they broke the uh, right sponson in half. It punctured into the wing, and it return back to to the shore and land it there. Get that repaired. Get finally do that. Pay off all the the officials. Uh, the first in Peru, and then in Mexico, where they had to do some other repairs. Finally, made it to Long Beach. Well, they along the way. I mean, they. They took off into the evening for favorable winds and conditions, and the the plan was to fly all night in the dark to get it back. 
But there was a little problem with that plan. <laughs> yes. So a couple when, of engine failures. <laughs> they had magneto trouble. The, they had trouble finding parts. They had trouble bribing people. It was hilarious. So he had to do a night flying boat landing. His first landing ever in this airplane, having never flown a VS-44. His first landing uh, was in Mexico uh, at night uh with a, a broken airplane circle back <laughs> to do a 180 uh get back over the bay with uh not knowing where mooring hands were boats ship fishing boats or anything i think that was in acapulco <laughs> yes yeah okay <laughs> oh just it's it's a amazing story and uh you can read actually all of this david has a, a wonderful book called the knights of avalon uh that we sell at the seaplane pilots association and we'll make sure we have a link in the show notes, but um, it goes into a lot more detail of this story as well. By the way, they uh, got it back to Long Beach in 19, uh, let's see, 56, and refurbished it with his partner, uh, uh, Walter von Kleinschmidt, who was a smart businessman. They refurbished it, read, read, had it ready to carry 47 passengers, um to avalon this is mm-hmm. what they did of course during world war ii that sikorsky used to fly from new york to foynes ireland uh under auspices of the u.s navy and so it was painted with camouflage and all those years um that uh, flew back and forth for all of world war ii yeah uh the government took uh, control of all the flying boats pretty much from pan am and everyone else and uh accommodated them and uh pressed them into service for the military so uh, let's talk about how you get a job uh, working with this amazing flying boat on, of all places, Catalina Island, one of the most romantic places in the world. How, how does one do that? Well, living in the right spot was helpful. <laughs> we were in a direct line from Los Angeles Airport uh, to the, uh, what's called the Airport in the Sky, uh, on the spine, the upper uh, elevations at Catalina. And the DC-3s from United uh, Airlines, the silver jobs, that they had uh, mm-hmm. two flights a day right straight over our house. And so my brother and I was always look up, you know, we're little kids. Oh, look, the Catalina plane. So that was first inspiration. So fast forward to about 1981, uh, I just had my 20th birthday, and I said, I'm going to take a, my first airplane flight ever. I've been immersed in airplanes for all these years. Been watching years. them, looking up at the sky your whole life, and uh, your first flight in, a, in an aircraft, and you're going to get a flying job. Absolutely. Went to Long Beach <laughs> Airport, got into the airplane, heard the great sounds of the engines, both of the radial. I didn't know what a radial was. Uh, took off, I found out later, by the way, this was a Grumman Goose flown by Clarence Jasper, an ace for the Royal Canadian Air Force in World War II. <laughs> so we uh, headed across the channel, uh, flew over the uh, harbor in Avalon Bay, just like I'd envisioned, nice white sandy beach, palm trees, gorgeous. But we didn't land there. He went down the co- up the coast, sorry, um, Turned around and we taxied for about ten to fifteen minutes because it was too darn rough. This was in December, yeah. <laughs> and so I was really impressed. I didn't know we were going to land on the water, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was the only goose that made it into the bay that day in December. It was too rough, 
So he had to return. He had to return empty, um, and they ban- vanned us. We went on a van up to the top of the airport in the sky for our return flight. So that was on a DC three. So on my first day of flying, uh, passenger, I went in a Grumman Goose and a DC three. Well, that's pretty amazing, and. They, the operations there, so you're talking about Pacific Ocean operations. And so on top of the uh, VS-44, uh, Catalina operated a fleet of over half a dozen gooses. Seven. Seven, yeah. So I, I knew it was right six to seven. So seven gooses, and then you had a competitor that operated up where the uh, uh, Douglases operated as well. And one of our good friends, it's so funny, It's you, you talk about a small world, Dennis Buen, whose airplane that I got married in, his Grumman Albatross, uh, his father was the sheriff on Catalina uh, at the time, and Dennis flew the gooses for the competitor's airline. <laughs> so, of course, Dennis was maybe, oh, six, eight years younger than I was at the time. Yeah, so it was well after your <laughs> your time uh, as a dog boy, uh, but it's interesting how our paths have crossed over the years, and we all have become friends and and kind of look back on this. So they were flying seven gooses, but then they had the great queen of the seas, the VS-44. So, the, uh, of course, the Sikorsky had been acquired by Catalina Airline, uh, Avalon Air Transport, first name. But uh, they had acquired that in the 50s, and I didn't show up on the docks until the following summer, which I'd been hired to do, um, as a dock boy. Um, and so... Uh, I got to deal with these all radial engines. It was uh, just a super time in, from aircraft and pilots from the golden age of aviation. And so just the, the first landing and taxiing to the docks in Avalon Bay gave me an idea what I was going to be encountering that summer. How, how was your interview? What was the interview? With Dick, did Dick Probert did the interview, right? No, Dick would oh, okay. be. He was the owner and chief pilot and main pilot of the Sikorsky. He had better things to do than talk to a future dock boy. Okay. <laughs> but, the, but how'd that go? Was it easy or was it, uh, what, what, what were they interested in? So, well, the station manager... Tony Guyon, long-term family name in Avalon, he looked at me. He thought, this guy's here. He seems okay. Uh, it's December, and he's looking for a job next summer. He, I'm going to give him a try. He paid to fly over here for the interview. <laughs> That's correct. And so you had some gumption. I should mention that the cost of the darn ticket was like, I don't know, 12 bucks round, <laughs> round trip. Round trip. <laughs> so uh, let's get into the, the operations on the island because – Again, it was a, a, a very magical time. I'm, I'm so envious of the fact that you got to do it and I wasn't there. And uh, didn't, he wasn't even born until the, 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 the end of all of this. But uh, operating seven gooses and a VS-44 at Catalina in Avalon Bay, uh, it was a very, we'll just say, colorful experience. Uh, it described the experience of being a dock boy on this magical time on Catalina with these amazing airplanes. Well, I didn't really understand that I was in the middle of all of this history and tradition and an advancement in aviation, but boy, I was hit with it all at once. Um, and so the first trip in, when we came taxiing into the bay, I realized, well, well, first we're going to land on the water, and every one of these planes in our fleet for the rest of my uh, seven years with the uh, company, these guys had to know, the pilots had to know 
what the wind the swells the direction whether it was landing takeoff or even docking it's all contributing to our to the pilot's dilemma and he's counting on you know a handful of uh, probably hungover college kids to get to, to, to rustle this airplane and muster it into place. So you're talking number one Pacific Ocean, and since the island is 22 miles out in the ocean, you're talking uh, Pacific Ocean swells, which intimidate me to begin with in a in any size boat. Uh, and then you also have this mountainous terrain with the wind currents. Uh, that would affect operations. And then you had this little tiny sweet spot called Avalon Bay, which would give very conducive landing conditions uh, if it weren't for the fact that there were mooring balls, moored airplanes, uh, speedboats, water skiers, everything else zooming across Avalon Bay. And you had to ride the mountain down to the bay in the airplane on the approach. So speed control was going to be very critical as well. So describe, describe that because it was, a, it was a real challenge for the pilots. Either they had to land out in the big swells outside the bay or they had to contend with uh, uh, the, the porcupine of activity that was going on uh, inside the, the bay. <laughs> That's a good term. The, uh, you, one category of possible hazards was the... the uh, the vacationers that had rented a boat <laughs> right yeah. next to our pier. I had no idea that there were flying boat operations going on. <laughs> and, of course, here's a guy with a one rugged either Grum and Goose or the monster Sikorsky um, having to deal with the person that has right-of-way. <laughs> yeah. And so the boats, by the, I should also mention there was a political uh, hazard also. Most of the folks in the bay, and starting with the harbor master, were not happy with us uh, for a couple of reasons. Our boats was, had always owned the bay. Oh, yeah. And so those guys had been there since drug running days or before. Prohibition. Exactly. And so... They looked upon, uh, well, our owner was, uh, and chief pilot, Dick Prover, he was pretty crusty, so he didn't necessarily schmooze well. And so the, the harbor master, the glass-bottom boat people, even the gas dock people, it was amazing. So we had to do a careful dance, and so did those pilots. So approach depended on first flying in. You weren't going to land in the bay. You're going to be clipping off sailboat mass. So these guys had different approaches depending on the wind and the swells. And so yep. they, uh, you know, the canyon approach. The, the canyon approach. <laughs> coming down right over downtown into the water. Or the uh, the casino approach, which was a, uh, we'll have to ask Dennis Buin about some of that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, first of all, the skills the of the pilots the experience the judgment uh, and the design of the aircraft where to they handle the beating that they took oh my god so the the uh, especially the grum and gooses because they were doing many rotations winter and summer whereas the sikorsky only flew in the to avalon in the summer yeah and uh, you're talking a much smaller airplane which meant that it was affected by the swells a lot more in the sea conditions mm-hmm. so uh life on the dock in between flights the dock boys had uh, a little bit of mischief that uh, they got to exercise. Uh, I, I again, there, there's probably stories we can't even tell here, uh, but uh, the dock was uh, putting a bunch of young kids that were responsible for marshalling 
these flying boats in and out of the dock and taking care of the loading and unloading and everything else. But when the airplanes weren't there, you guys got into a little bit of, uh, you had fun. We'll just put it that way. Uh, is there is there anything we can talk about with that? Uh, let's see. Well, the statute of limitations is probably <laughs> up on some of that. Uh, so, uh, first of all, uh, and I in about two years, I was the station, uh, the uh, dock foreman, and I did the hiring and firing. And I was be I would interview those folks who come and say, "Hey, well, I'm that's scary. You were the responsible one. I'm, I'm, that concerns me. How we survived, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's a good point, Steve. <laughs> so." Um, First of all, we'd try them out. We'd try to get them to come Easter vacation uh, week when they were out of school. and uh, We could see if they could stand it and vice versa. And that was a good measuring to a stick for the dock boys. We had usually in the winter maybe three dock boys and in the summer usually six or eight. And you had a couple of small skiffs that you would run uh, to actually help uh, push the, uh, the, uh, the VS-44 into the dock. Many uses for our two skiffs, both with 18-horse engines. Uh, and the, the Woody Boat, which we were quite imaginative with naming things. So the Woody okay. Boat, which was wider and more stable. And the Tinny Boat, which was an aluminum <laughs> craft, which would go like heck. So we used those uh, mostly for docking the Sikorsky. And, you know, so you would actually bring the Sponson over the dock and have it go on the far side of the dock the way the dock was designed you could lower the wing of the the outboard wing and push it in uh and then i'm sure when you were unloading and loading you let the sponson did it go down in the water when you were loading and unloading on the other on the on the other side of the dock so when they fueled the uh, sikorsky um uh, on the mainland, they would put most of the fuel. They're only going to fly, you know, at what three hundred feet, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> they uh, didn't climb. So literally, you did this twenty-two mile flight, which was only twelve minutes or so. But they never climbed like above three hundred feet for didn't the flight. Have to. No, and I- it was a two and a half hour, three hour boat trip, uh, at least. But it was a, a twelve minute flight good at three hundred feet. Uh, good what a point. what a good way to go. Yeah, and so the fuel would go in the starboard wing. Uh, because by the time we got to Avalon, we needed that starboard wing down. And, of course, the port wing would be up, so it was clearing the, the, uh, the L float at the end of the, the, uh, the straight float because we needed that L float at the end for the Grumman Gooses to spin, and we could spin them out there while the, the Sikorsky was tied to the side. So uh, if uh, we had an adverse wind condition tra- while they flew across the channel, sometimes we'd have too much fuel in the – in the uh, port wing, and we'd have to run dock boys out to the uh, other wing when we got it tied up and let the f- fuel run back where it's supposed to be. So that was always interesting. And I learned something that I actually hadn't thought about, which were the, the lockers in the top wing of the VS-44. So there were actually, what, eight compartments that were like the Correct. Uh, and you guys carried cargo, was it meat? Is Everything, that yeah. So <laughs> the well, first we have, of course, huge, two huge cavernous uh, bow compartments, mostly for luggage for our operation. But remember, this is a transoceanic ship, so uh, huge in the bow. Couple the tail was had amazing. You know, you got a long fishing pole, baby stroll. It's so the tail, but on the wings we had on each side there were four, hmm, eight foot long probably by two and a half foot wide. Uh, uh, compartments in the wing and that's where on each wing on each wing yeah 
And so Wednesdays was terror day for the Doc Boys because that was the day when all the meat, bread, frozen food for all the stores and restaurants came into town. And so they could get all of those supplies on one trip by the Sikorsky. Uh, but they had to be lifted up onto the top of the wing and loaded in the lockers and then unloaded. Those poor devils that worked at the um, Long Beach Harbor Pacific Landing, um, where the Queen Mary is today, yeah. uh, those poor devils had to get up early, get down to the docks, and shove all those th- boxes up on top of the fuselage and then into the wing bins. And it took them quite a while to do that. Uh, we had to spin it when we got the Sikorsky at Avalon Bay. We had to. It's a lot easier to unload than load. Oh, so we had gravity working for us. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the Dock Boys uh, used their unique uh, vantage point of of all the tourists, and and I would say their their young teenage daughters probably uh, to great advantage because you guys were. Uh, Let's see. I don't even know where to start with those exploits. <laughs> or, or finish. Well, uh, <laughs> so not too young. We're, these are older teenagers. I don't want to. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Confuse. I don't want to say. Yeah, I got to be careful as that was coming out of my mouth. But uh, uh, but anyway, we'll just say that you were in an advantageous uh, position. So we were in the middle of the bay. We're all wearing our uniforms, you know, nice blue shirt and white Bermudas. And noisy, flashy, and so we were kind of a, a little cocky. Yeah, well, no. <laughs> and so uh, loading the Sikorsky, 47 passengers, everybody, after they checked in, was issued a, a big gate pass. So that, and we'd just collect the boarding passes when they, uh, and close the doors and off the Sikorsky'd go. So we had this idea that we're going to have a beach party, let's say down the coast at White's Landing or something. Well, that'll be leaving after work. Uh, we need to solicit some folks and give them a gate pass so we can. <laughs> so, so during lunch hours and what have you, uh, a couple of select dock boys, the better looking ones. I never did this, but they'd go on. Oh, to the, oh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, I believe that. <laughs> they, they'd go on to the beach and find a couple of folks and uh, converse with them briefly and decide if they were uh, gate pass worthy. <laughs> And so at the designated hour, you know, 7.30 or whenever in the summer, uh, these bevy of beauties would come on down to the pier where we'd arrange for shore boats, our woody boat and tinny boat, uh, kegs of beer that had come in the wing bin of the Sikorsky, uh, hot dogs, guitars, sleeping bags, and off we'd go. Uh, yeah, and I wasn't there. Why? <laughs> but we'll give Dave a chance to redeem himself because like my wedding story, uh, you had a special wedding story associated with the island and, and a flying boat. So um, why don't you describe that? Uh, how, how did you meet your wife? Hmm. Yeah. So one of those parties prepped days, I'd gotten all of the logistics working okay, and I was pushing a cart down the, to the ple- the pleasure pier toward the shore, and one of my dock boy fellow dock boys said, "Hey Dave, who are you taking to the to the party tonight?" And I thought, "Oh my God, I haven't gotten a date yet." So I I emptied the cart, turned around to come back up the pier toward the, our water end, and uh, 
was passing Eric's hamburger stand, and I saw this cute little gal there behind the counter, and I so thirsty, so I said, I'd like to have a Coke, please. And I thought, hmm, and said, hey, are you going to the party tonight? And she said, uh, what party? <laughs> <laughs> so I told her about it, and that was our first date. Wow, and then you ended up getting married. Uh... Correct. Yep. So... After- couple more summers and then we decided to get married and yeah that's that's amazing well uh hats off to you i i always like a romantic uh and i love a, a marriage that is uh has a connection to seaplanes obviously so that that's awesome so you know catalina island was kind of a hot spot for celebrities because it was so accessible to the hollywood types uh, you were, again, this short flight away, and you were in an island paradise. Uh, and there was a very active uh, film uh, production going on on the island as well. So a lot of the early Western movies were actually filmed on Catalina to the point that they brought in horses, a herd of uh, buffalo, and uh, those buffalo still exist on the island today. And thanks to the Wrigley family, uh, with their great foresight and thanks uh, to their stewardship of this amazing island, uh, the majority of the island is uh, national preserve now. And uh, those buffalo and wild horses still roam the island. And, and except for very small portions of the island, it's largely uh, all nature space. That is correct. Uh, the uh, Of course, back in the 20s, people like Tom Mix and um, Zane Gray, the Western writer, those guys had houses uh, in Avalon, and so there was a flavor, a Hollywood flavor. Uh, many celebrities and Hollywood stars came to Avalon, vacation in the summer or permanent house that they could visit whenever they wanted, um, using first the Douglas Dolphin and later some of the many operators that uh, preceded Catalina Airlines. And there was this wonderful social light uh I guess, inner circle uh, in Hollywood and in California at the time. Uh, You have uh, Randolph Hearst building the Hearst Castle uh, up the the coast in California, which is amazing and would always host amazing uh, Hollywood stars at the time. But I think Hearst and a lot of the same people uh, were also part of the regular uh, Catalina crowd, and they actually came across on the BS-44. So you actually got to see a lot of these people. Yeah, more modern times, uh, the, let's see, well, Tony Dow, who sadly just passed away, he was a star uh, on what was the TV series? I'll leave it to Beaver. There you go. He was Beaver's uh, older, older brother. brother. There you yeah. go. And his family, they were just charming. And so they flew up regularly. And he had some interesting pets. Uh, he did. So, yeah, the stewardess on the Sikorsky, Nancy Ince Probert, who has uh, an who was Dick Probert's wife. Amazing story for her, yeah. which I cover in the book. It's just a fascinating thing. I didn't know half of that when I was there. Uh, anyway, she would. She was this. She loved to visit frequent flyers and have special seating for them and what for the fifteen minute flight. But Tony Dale, yeah, he would bring his. Uh, well, he had an iguana. Who liked to? He didn't care about looking out the window. Tony did, but not the iguana. Yeah. And, but I, I, my favorite, which was petable, was Miles. Miles was his name. He was the penguin. Oh, and he was so docile and loved to watch out the window. So, how many people do you, have you ever come across in your life that had a pet penguin? <laughs> oh, well, <good laughs> the only one, probably. So, and and uh, John Wayne uh, frequented the island. 
he did. He John didn't fly. He had his own boat. What was it? The Blue Goose. Um, I think it was a converted AVR. Anyway, he'd come in. But we he knew Dick Probert from back in the 30s when Dick was out in the valley and was involved in filming a lot of things, as was Dick Probert in the, the what was it, Sea Hunt yeah. from the early 50s. But John was a really a personable guy. Uh, but if you saw him on the street, he wouldn't even acknowledge you because his his reasoning was if he stopped to talk to somebody, he was not going. He'd be surrounded by a crowd. Absolutely. And what was really odd is there was this guy that was very uh, uh, kind of well-known on the island, uh, uh, this this rough and tough kind of like fisherman guy who had the name Duke, and, and him and John Wayne uh, became very close. And they were, yeah, about two feet difference in height, probably. <laughs> Duke was the, um, he was the long-term lifeguard there. He was there for 120 years as the lifeguard. He was buff as can be, and 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 uh, just a, you know, when I think of like the classic like island type of, you know, persona. He actually uh, was a star in many of the you know, pirate movies, which yeah. were filmed in like Two Harbors and. He was what a lot of the rumor was he was the model for uh, Mr. Clean. Okay, yep, yep, that's what I mean. This yeah. guy was quite the dude. So, uh, I, again, we could go on all day about uh, the exploits of these dock boys, their, their passengers that got to fly these airplanes. And again, it was just to me such a romantical and special time in history. And uh, one of the greatest, I think, periods for seaplanes ever. And uh, unfortunately, though, uh, it came to an end, and it came to an end uh, way too soon. Uh, so for Dick Probert, uh, when he purchased the VS-44, he was already midway through his career, we'll say, and, and he got to a point uh, where he had to stop. You want to talk about kind of what brought the end to the uh, uh 44 service uh and and the gooses for for dick probert wow yeah dick probert uh that was his baby that's sikorsky uh and when he when dick probert reached 60 the fa said no more big four engine buggers like that you're gonna have to move it back to someone else so dick found up a, a buyer which was um the guy that was the original test pilot for Sikorsky. Which is an amazing story. The original test pilot for Sikorsky. Charles Blair. Charles Blair, who's a, uh, we, could, we need to do a whole other episode on, <laughs> uh, buys the VS-44 from Dick and ends up owning the airplane that he was the test pilot for. Yep. And then starts a seaplane service in the Virgin Islands. Yep. So... Dick Probert and Charlie Blair flew the Sikorsky across Mexico, and they wound up uh, in the Virgin Islands uh, Antilles Airboats, is yep. the, the company that uh, that Charlie Blair had formed with his wife Maureen O'Hara. Another Hollywood connection there, and an Irish connection. And and uh, John Wayne was a, a friend of of uh, Charlie, and was also uh, a frequent visitor with Charlie and Maureen down in the Virgin Islands. So it's interesting that uh, the Duke was from Catalina to Virgin Islands, but even though he didn't fly them, uh, he was a fan to the point that he was always in their close proximity. Yep. Amazing stuff, though. All the, uh, It's a small fraternity, it appears. Every time you turn around, there's another aviation connection with these, uh, at least in my experience, uh, with, uh, and in fact, the 
conference we just attended, it was amazing to be around hundreds of people, enthusiastic, talking about seaplanes. Yeah. And and so while Dick Probert stopped flying, what, in 68? 67. Uh, 67. And then, um, but uh, the airline Dennis flew with, uh, the competitive airline flew the gooses into the early '80s. Am I right? Right. That? They uh, we were the last uh, vestiges of operation in the bay, which had been hard won back in the '50s, and so uh, the, that pe- kind of petered out. And the use of the uh, ramp down at Pebbly Beach, which is a bit down the coast, the south southeast of Avalon, that was used by several different airlines. Many of the gooses that had been in the our fleet, Catalina Airlines, wound up in different liveries and di- with different names uh, at different times. And other operations then, um, because the helicopters started coming in and flying folks over, uh, they weren't subject to as much of the saltwater corrosion as yeah, the Roman gooses. a lot easier on the maintenance. Yep. Yeah, so... Uh, well, I think what's important to say is while there are no Boeing 314s left in existence, there are very few examples of this era of flying boats. Most of them did not survive, uh, but the VS-44 did survive, and uh, where is it today? Uh, you and I both have visited it, I, uh, where it is today. Absolutely, and after about 20 years of uh, corrosion and dis- uh, and neglect, it wound its way up uh, from uh, Antilles to, to Florida and ultimately to uh, New England because that's near where it was born. And a group at New England Air Museum, uh, in conjunction with the Sikorsky employees who actually built it in the 40s, they refurbished that plane and then de- – dedicated it in the New England Air Museum at Windsor Locks, Connecticut, near, um, what is that, bigger town? I forget. Uh, Hartford. It's right by Hartford. There you go. And so it's now beautifully displayed. Uh, It's not flyable, sadly, but uh, it's just gorgeous. It is a beautiful display. New New England Air Museum. And uh, you should go see it if you're ever in Connecticut, uh, the museum has several Grumman gooses sitting out in the backyard, uh, in the in outside the museum. But uh, this amazing flying boat that uh, uh, David got to work on still exists, and it is one of the very few examples from this era of the magnificent large flying boats that exist today. And uh, it is really a treat to see it. And uh, thanks to Maureen O'Hara, who started the preservation process by donating it to the Navy, I believe, originally. And then the Navy uh, passed it on to the museum where it is today. And uh, Maureen was a huge fan of seaplanes. And uh, uh, again, that's a whole nother story because they operated Grumman Gooses, a large fleet of Grumman Gooses, like 18 or 19 of them down at Antilles Airways. They had uh, the Haviland Doves, a very interesting and, uh, again, obscure airplane for most people that they've never heard of. And um, uh, sadly, we lost Charlie in a, a seaplane accident. But uh, Chuck Kimes, who are uh, Chuck Kimes, uh, Tyler Orzo Memorial Scholarship, is named after, uh, actually flew for Charlie. Uh, and flew down there. And so um, we have had a lot of uh, 
great opportunities to to speak with people that operated down at Antilles Airways, and I'm just thrilled that the VS44 still exists. Uh, so, Dave, what are some of your greatest memories of of working with the VS44, uh, the fly, the gooses down at Avalon? Um, you know, again, I look on it with such romance, and I wasn't there, and I wish. I, I so deeply wish I would have been there during this period. What are some of the greatest memories? Well, many facets, uh, but the greatest would be, well, the title of my book is The Knights of Avalon. The Knights of Avalon, yeah. And so... Uh, and I guess your memories are in the book, so that's really the... Uh, the so the, the Knights are the pilots, okay? Yeah. Uh, uh, that name of the for the book came to me in the shower one morning. I thought, ah, yeah, that sounds good to me. So the... Those guys were all greatest generation pilots, um, served uh, in World War II in military roles and training roles. Unbelievable. Every one of them had a story, and they were classics. So that's And my, they were real pilots. Absolutely. Multi-engine C doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. Uh, so that's the biggest takeaway. Although I do have one little hark back that I just remembered, and it has to do with Bay politics. <laughs> so the Sikorsky is ready to, we're going to, we got her fully loaded. She's ready to take off, leave the dock. She's lined up so she can go straight out. But remember all that, ha- those potential hazards. Oh, yeah. Well, one of them was uh, one of the biggest glass bottom boat named the Phoenix. I think it's still around. Um, it was operated by a gentleman who was really a long-time guy. His ha- family had been there forever. His son, uh, is, this is a movie star, uh, Gregory Harrison. Mm-hmm. Eddie Harrison, his dad, and he'd run that glass-bottom boat operation forever. Well, they both had, both he and Dick Probert had really strong personalities. And, and they weren't, it was kind of like putting oil and water together. <laughs> And so when it came time for the Sikorsky to leave the dock, somehow Eddie would arrange it so that his load of uh, glass bottom boat fans would leave at the same time. And, of course, boats have right away. And so there were a few times I remember when the Sikorsky would fire up and leave the dock and up. Here come the Phoenix right across the bow. Right across the bow of you the You could see S-40. the smoke coming yeah. out of the top of the cockpit on the Sikorsky. Oh, it was just... <laughs> and that's coming out of Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. So Dick was not only the owner, but I again, uh, just a quick shout out to him for the fact that uh, he owned the airline, but he was also the chief pilot and the primary pilot of the S-44 and um, I just think, I mean, he worked night and day. He was a very hardworking guy. One capable uh, charge-ahead guy. Hard to work. He only fired me twice. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, it never stuck. But, uh, yeah, he was uh, one of those that was a real pioneer, capable guy. Uh, you didn't want to cross him. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, he was. He was a, short and powerful. Correct. I think <laughs> Napoleon was his middle name, but I'm not sure of that. And uh, very and a, a very uh, strong physique as well for his size. I mean, uh, he was a pretty, pretty memorable guy. And then, uh, have we forgot anything before we sign off uh, for this episode? Because again, there. I mean, literally, there could be three or four chapters with different episodes 
attached to each one of you know the these phases i guess in the whole story um i guess you know just from my point of view starting out in my bermudas on the dock uh, and winding up later as the station manager and having all of these inputs whether it was the island history the pilots the history of the craft um, I have never worked at another, uh, since then, never worked at a job where I wanted to go down to work on a day off and see what was going on. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's really amazing. And uh, if you have not had the opportunity uh, to go to Catalina, you should put it on your bucket list uh, because it is an amazing place to visit. It is there there's been a lot more development in the recent years but again the major far far majority of the island is set aside as natural preserve but there's still a lot of rich history uh, the island is famous for catalina tile uh, which is still made on the island and it's not catalina tile if it's not made on the island very colorful used for a lot of mosaics uh, avalon still has a lot of history uh, down there, the casino that Wrigley built still stands today and is a museum. Uh, and a, the glass-bottom boats, I think, are still running in some form. Um, and uh, you've got great offshore fishing with the Tuna Club and some very exclusive stuff like that. So uh, uh, put uh, Catalina on your bucket list and try to search out some of this flying boat history if you get a chance. Uh, also, I would highly encourage you, if you've you've enjoyed this episode uh please uh pick up a copy of the knights of avalon by david johnston Uh, we do sell it at the seaplane pilots association and if you buy it from spa um he actually has signed uh the inside cover on all the books we signed or that we sell so uh we'll put a link to that in the show notes uh we hope you've enjoyed uh sitting down with david uh it's a treat uh it's been a long time since the two of us have been able to get together uh so it's been nice to have this reunion with david uh over the last uh, couple of days and uh highly enjoyed Thank you, David. Oh, Steve, thanks for the opportunity um, uh, sharing some real treasures, and I hope that inspires folks to go visit Catalina, learn more about flying boats, and have a good time. Yes. So until next time, fly safe, fly often. Please share our podcast, Water Flying, with your friends, and keep on listening, uh, and stay tuned for the next episode. We'll see you. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events, not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.